roll up your sleeves, try a bunch of different things, try to you know, learn from people that you respect and are inspired by. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. And today, I am very excited to have my new friend, Ben Wolf, co-founder at Onera and CEO at Stay Owasi. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here because you have a very unique journey in hospitality and it goes a lot of different paths. And so I always want to show people like there isn't just one journey out there, but we always start with what was your first job in hospitality? Yeah, so I feel I think about hospitality kind of broadly. So I didn't work in a hotel as a GM or, or you know in a restaurant or something like that. But I did do party planning and promotion in college. I actually had this event production company called Three One Four Events, and we would you know bus kids to and from the school, and we worked out deals with the venues, the local venues, and yeah, it was a it was a fun little business that. We, I actually bought from a fraternity brother of mine, and then we kind of grew and expanded it. So. so were you the guy throwing parties in high school, or were you the one organizing things before you got to college? Uh, yeah. In, in high school, we weren't necessarily charging for them. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you can consider that hospitality, but you know that that might have actually been when I got my start around how do we you know help people have an experience, show them a good time, make them comfortable, and and also you know in a in a setting that's conducive for social, socializing, having fun, et cetera. So when you're there, you're Wash U, right? Is yep. that where Wash you went? Wash in St. Louis was, right. was where 314 was, yep. What fraternity are you in? Because I'm a fraternity guy too, so I got to find out more about you now. Sammy, Sigma Alpha Mu. Sigma Alpha Mu, all right. I'm a Sigma Phi Epsilon. So I like that we have the fraternity guys here because I haven't interviewed somebody that's been in one. And you meet a lot of different people. And I think just being in a fraternity is kind of being in your own little hospitality business. So when you're throwing these parties, was there something about it you really liked? Or was it just kind of like, oh, it's just a cool way to meet some awesome people, get some girls over and make some money? Yeah. So, I mean, I've always liked to host. I think since I was in high school, college, even today, like I like to host, I like to put on a good party event, whatever, even if it's like my wife's birthday with 10 people, I enjoy doing it. My mom actually is is really good at it and I think enjoys doing it as well. And, and my dad in a different way. So, 
certainly kind of runs in the family a little bit, this whole idea of hosting. And I think, I think about, you know, Airbnb hosts, right. And then there's like hosting an event. So there's a lot of overlap between hosting and, and hospitality. Yeah. That's how I think about it. So when you were in school, this is not something you were studying, right? Like you weren't going to school and be like, Oh, I'm going to be a hospitality professional. What were you in school for while you were doing this? No, I, I was in school for, for business, for undergraduate business. Um, I knew I wanted to go into business, wanted to start my own thing. Didn't, you know, hospitality and these sort of uh, this event production and promotion company that I had was really to me felt like just an initial entrepreneurial endeavor, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a, a kind of a startup of sorts that I was running and making some cash flow on the side while I was in college. But for a while, I, I wanted to start a, a tech company, right? I mean, when I in more of a true blue, like software company or social media company or something like that, you know, seeing, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, Bezos and all these guys, like when I was going to college, really kind of blowing up. Mm-hmm. And, and there was something interesting and attractive to that. I actually did a, I had a you know minor in entrepreneurship and then I, I ended up transferring to NYU and had a concentration in entrepreneurship there as well and really got plugged into the tech startup scene within New York City when it was mm-hmm. really getting big with Uber and Foursquare and you know there's a lot of activity in New York and uh, actually kind of right after the, the 08 crash, like 09, 10, 11 and you know got plugged in there and was was super interested in in tech, but wasn't a coder. So I actually did a a, a case study around non tech founders in tech, right? Mm-hmm. And finding talking to guys that weren't necessarily a technical background or side of things, but but still had been successful in the space. But you know, it's interesting. Like you think you want to do to do one thing. You know, I, I tried some more tech focused, software focused plays that you know didn't end up panning out. But it's just interesting where where life takes you and and kind of what what I ultimately ended up starting up was, I think, a little more in my blood, more in my sweet spot when it came to yeah. hospitality and real estate. And just going through the notes while you're at school, I think this is why you're still at school. You do a camp counselor for a summer, it looks like. Was that something that you had been there before or you were like, oh, I want to do something fun and different? How did that come up? Because I think that might play a part into later. Yeah. So I, I was a camp counselor even before that, when I was growing up and, and, and went to sleepaway camp, you know, for full summers for years mm-hmm. and then was a counselor at that camp, that summer that you're referring to uh, between a couple years of college, um, I went and did uh, a summer at my brother's camp. My brother's autistic. You know, it was a way to do something a little more socially conscious minded. I, I, you know, because I grew up with an autistic brother, I kind of had a knack for, helping and kind of handling those types of kids. And so, yeah, I just figured I'd have fun doing that for a summer, met a, bu- met a bunch of international people that, that you know, a lot of camp counselors are international folks that are mm-hmm. coming over to see the States and, and that's how they do it. Um, and yeah, I was, I had a knack for it and, and did really well at it because I grew up with it. So. And is that something you like doing? You like being outdoors and, and being out at this camp? Cause you did it while you're in school. I never had the chance to do it. But is that what stuck with you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the outdoors. I mean, I, I lived in New York city after college and, and the end of college for, you know, 12, 13 years. So mm-hmm. I had, had a great outdoors beat anatomy a little bit from New York, <laughs> but, you know, then rediscovered it after I got married towards the end of 2019. And then me and my wife for our honeymoon, we did a road trip around the Southwestern U S. Um, so we, we took an RV and we hit like a dozen national parks over six weeks. And I like that. It was, yeah, it was amazing. There, there's some aspects of RV life that are not sexy. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things that go wrong and, 
you got to hire mobile mechanics and drive hours to get to dealerships and all this kind of stuff, which kind of led to wanting Onera to be a little more of an upscale, you know, mm -hmm. uh, landscape hotel, uh, get re reinvigorated and in touch with the great outdoors, but kind of having all the comforts of home. Part of it was born out of the pain that I experienced doing RV life for those yeah. weeks. I like this because that's where like, it's like me and like my wife, like, I say, let's go camping. I'm like, I don't know. Like I need like a warm shower and yeah. I need just something to be clean. Like these bugs might be around. We're going to have to figure that out. But we've talked about that backstage, but I want to talk about how you get to Onera. So if you're in school, you want to start doing some tech world stuff. You're going to be the Steve Jobs of some big app that's coming, but you start doing something a little bit different. You start working at some of the biggest companies and consulting and you get involved with Deloitte for a little bit, and then you head into McKinsey and Company, where you're there for a decent amount of time. What was that like? So I think McKinsey definitely helped refine me as a business person and a strategic thinker, certainly. It certainly got better at spreadsheets, PowerPoints, mm -hmm. all those sorts of yeah. things. Also, I mean, we had a, a whole team in India that would do a lot of the PowerPoint presentations and things like that. So kind of was my initial foray into outsourcing. Yep. Um, which now I have a bunch of people in the Philippines that do guest communications and help with pricing implementation and a bunch of stuff. So, and, and I actually had a project with McKinsey with a big bank that the whole project was around recommending to them where they should implement their new call center. Mm -hmm. overseas. And we, we looked at like uh, Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, which was a big hub. And, and we looked at the Philippines and a couple other places. So that was really a precursor to something that became a, a really huge part of, of my operation later. I used to hate on the consultants that came to the hotel world. Like, what hotel did you work at? They're like, oh, I just started, right? So what was it like for you being a young consultant? Were you having to learn a lot from the senior people there? Was it something you were just naturally able to do? What was that balance like for you when you're at McKinsey? Yeah, so I feel like I, I definitely had respect from a lot of my managers as somebody that had a decent amount of business acumen from an early age. And some of that was like me being a hustler and having kind of side things going on while I was at McKinsey that that I think they thought were interesting. And some of that was, you know, good problem solver, good sort of business strategic thinker. I was okay at Excel. I wasn't, you know, like, these <laughs> like a magician, vendors, right? And yeah, so I had respect on that front. And I've always had a decent amount of confidence, you know, and self-assurance. And I think that plays well and is helpful when it comes to, to dealing with clients, you know, at, at these big companies that we worked for. And certainly the whole idea around hosting and trying to make people feel comfortable and good. I mean, that was something I learned with the event production company in college mm -hmm. and, and just something that came natural to me. And I was also interested in, in trying to develop. I remember my dad you know, gave me how to win friends and influence people or like, yeah. I think in high school, I read that book and yeah, still, I mean, I think I still probably use some of that stuff today and it just helps build relationships, keep relationships, continue to develop them. And I think that helped me with clients too. So what changes from there? What is the next step after McKinsey? So you're there for a little bit. I'm sure it wasn't everything you dreamed of doing Excel sheets and PowerPoints and talking to other people with their own businesses. What made the change to the next step? I think pretty early on at McKinsey, I think my, my biggest struggle there and being a consultant was you spend all this time building decks and talking about your ideas and, and advising them, but you don't actually, you don't normally see it come to fruition at a company like McKinsey. At, at other ones, you know, Deloitte, Accenture are a little more involved in the implementation and, you know, that can have its own kind of challenges and frustrations, mm -hmm. you know, at a big company. 
But at McKinsey, it was like, here's your strategy, like good luck in a lot of ways. And I'm someone who really likes to build something, see it live on kind of beyond me as the driving force. I think it's one of the reasons I, I, I kind of fell into and, and ended up loving real estate development is because you really get to see something like come to life that yeah. you've helped bring to fruition and then kind of see that dream come through and, and live on beyond just like you and your initial ideas. So yeah, that, that was part of why I think I, I moved away from McKinsey and, and was kind of thinking about startup ideas pretty early in to my career there. Cause I, I knew I was going to want to shift at some point mm-hmm. and yeah. So from there, I went from, you know, working whatever it was, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. Sometimes if you're on a private equity due diligence project with McKinsey, it's your, your life is not very fun, right? Are you sleeping under the desk? Is it like what you read about? Is that what it's like? It's it's similar to iBanking lifestyle. If you get into one of those projects, some of the projects are much more cushy, but there's other challenges to it, right? A lot of travel. I had one project in uh, Princeton, New Jersey. So I had to get up at the crack of dawn every day and drive out there to, to try to miss traffic and so there's, there's definitely challenges with it, but yeah, I ended up, you know, getting back to that like event promotion and production world a little bit. And I love that in college linked up with a, a buddy who was actually a childhood actor and still did some acting and hosting. And, and we formed this lifestyle and events company called ambiance and started doing, yeah, we did nightclub promoting basically in New York city, put on events, put on big trips. We actually had some real estate aspects to it as well where we were doing some kind of Airbnb before Airbnb with yep. like short-term rental or even monthly rentals of people that wanted to come and experience the city. And we would, you know, so that, so they would come experience the city, stay in some of our places and, you know, that would help in our promotional efforts at, at some of these nightclubs and, and different venues where we were expected to, you know, bring out a bunch of people. So that was kind of dipping my toe again in hospitality, had a lot of fun with that for a few years got to live this lifestyle that I couldn't afford, right? Mm -hmm. As a 22 or 23 year old in New York City. So I I feel like I probably got a million dollars in value just in terms of the experiences that that I was able to experience for that three or so year period. You know, got to do the the Hamptons, super large, multiple summers, Coachella, you know, took a group, big group to Costa Rica, Dominican Republic. That wasn't making much money, just, you know, a little bit of money, but a ton of experiences meeting a ton of interesting people, a bunch of wealthy people, right. That were actually paying for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. It just, just continued my ability to foster relationships, you know, build those relationships. And through that whole kind of endeavor, I ended up meeting Jesse Comley. I, I think you, you talked mm-hmm. to on our last call, my co-founder in Stay which is our marketing and management firm for these experiential hospitality products like Onera and met him. He was very early to the game in Airbnb. You know, we had been subletting some of these apartments and I ended up converting them to full-time Airbnbs. And this is before New York City was really cracking down, Right, um, was making good money doing that. Jesse kind of saw my ability to, to get things done and to execute. And he ended up hiring me to do business development with all my relationships and people I knew. So he wanted me as a business development, business relationship person for one of the first Airbnb management companies I knew of called Sensei that he yep. had founded. And yeah, so I worked there for, for so a bit. I want to, I want to rewind on something because for yeah. listeners, you, you don't get to see this, but Ben's eyes lit up remembering what was going on at those parties and just a big <laughs> smile came across his face, but it's cool that you met 
who's now your like future partner at one of these things. How did that come up? Was it a guest at one of these parties? Because a lot of people don't realize is like, you never know where that next relationship's going to come, whether it's networking or just going to a dinner party. How did that pop up? Yeah. So, so Jesse, I actually, I met through a friend, somebody that, you know, that I knew from New York, actually knew from NYU. And I was thinking about renting out my apartment for the Super Bowl. Ended up being a dud because it was like frigid weather in New York that yeah, year. I, remember like, that I forget year. what it was. I think it was like 20, 2013 or 14. Yeah, I remember um, that one. They're like always going to be in Miami or a warm weather place after that. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. It was a total dud. And, and we thought we were going to rent our place for thousands of dollars and we didn't. But I, I met Jesse and he was already you know doing this kind of stuff and talking to me about managing our places. So I met him through that. But the relationship really got cultivated because my event and production company – was current was in New York. Mm-hmm. We had expanded to LA, and uh, Jesse was in Miami, building up, getting up a bunch of units. Actually, at I don't know if you know the Flamingo. You probably of course know. I know the Flamingo. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he was getting a bunch of units at the Flamingo. So was Airbnb. Jesse making all that noise over there? Airbnb. No, he was Airbnb. So he was getting mm-hmm. a bunch of units to Airbnb mm-hmm. and convinced me to come down and, and expand to Miami. And so, you know, we got we got deals with Story and Live and the W. What is it? Wall, I think. Wall, right? Yeah, that was yes. there. No longer yeah. there. But yeah. Yeah. So so we got deals there, expanded there. And that's where my relationship with him really developed. And, and when he decided, like, hey, I want to I want to hire this kid. And then, yeah, from there. So so worked for Jesse and Sensei for a bit, you know, enjoyed that. Ended up I did end up switching careers, you know, doing a, a bit of a kind yeah, of like a, a quick pivot, right? Like you get into yeah, a quick pivot. I mean, look, I was, I was partying pretty hard. I, I needed to kind of get out of that world for a bit and, and kind of clean up my act there. And, and actually just, in Miami, that's where you were based. Well, I, I was bouncing between New York, Miami and LA. So, yeah, right, so you got where, the big three biggest cities, man. Yeah. It, it was wherever, wherever kind of was the, the best place to be at any given time, whether it was Basel or Coachella or whatever I was yeah. kind of bouncing around. And so I, I ultimately reconnected with some of my McKinsey colleagues who were at this software company called Quid that was doing data analytics for so natural language processing. It was probably a little bit early, but we were selling into consulting firms like BCG was a huge client and you know Deloitte. And, and so I got put on this team that was kind of selling into these consulting firms and doing client success. And it was a great, super intellectually stimulating job that got me back into data and a number of these other things that, that I really like on the analytical side of things. So got me back into that. Still was making money on the side with my you know, New York Airbnbs and was picking up some more properties that we were you know, leasing and, and subleasing basically. And, and that was your friends were like, oh, Ben, you should talk to Ben and he could take care of your places. Was that kind of the conversation for like the side hustle or was it just stuff you were taking on yourself? Well, so that, so that came later. I think you're getting into when I actually got into the management side. So this mm-hmm. was initially I had some places that Sensei was managing for me. So Jesse's company was managing for me. I was doing sales at this, you know, so, this, quid, this yeah. software company and was making good money there and then was mm-hmm. making good side money. And you need to make good money to be living in New York City or, or yep. bouncing, you know, bouncing around. But at that point, I was pretty stable in New York. And yeah, from from there, I, I started building up that portfolio. And that was with a partner of mine, John Cole, um, who actually is the partner in the real estate fund that funded Onera, Spirit of Sophia, the hotel we have in Palm Springs, you know, Onera Wimberley. 
And, and, you know, me and him collectively like fostered the relationship with the public hotel re summit that ultimately bought, you know, bought a majority interest in Onera, but that's kind of skipping ahead. Yeah. So, so yeah, we, we started building our portfolio, had some units in New York, you know, got some in DC and I think it was April, 2018, we had something like eight or so units. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the point where I had friends of mine like, Hey, like, I, you know, see you making money in this space. How do I get in on that? How do I get some units? Can you manage them for me? And, and that's when I was like, Oh, wow, I could, I could manage these units, you know, help, help them identify them, furnish them, design them. I had a designer that I worked with who was a good friend and then manage them. And it'd be nice recurring revenue that would more than replace my salary from quid and right. allow me to, to really grow this thing. That's, that's where I want to touch on because a lot of yeah. people are having that job. Like you had a quid, they're comfortable, they're making money. They got this side. When did you decide like, all right, this is, this is something. How was that decision? Was it just simple as looking at your McKinsey Excel sheets that you've learned to make and say, all right, it's going to make money. Or it was like, I talked to some families, really, what really want to do. How did that happen? So I'd say it, it came down to two things. So I was making more money with less work doing this thing on the side or like mm-hmm. saw the ability to definitely make more money more easily. And, you know, look, I think early in my career, I was more, I need to find something I'm super passionate about and, you know, this amazing one of a kind idea that I'm going to bring to fruition. At that point in my career, I think I was much more like, hey, this this thing is working you know, I'm interested enough in it. I think I can grow it. I see a path, like, let's go do it. So that was one side of it. And the other side, I think is around what you're talking about, the leap, right? The leap from nine to five to I'm going to do my own thing. And I've, I've been, I've, I've I've been a risk taker, right? Like I believe in risk reward. I think if you don't risk, then, then you're, you're not going to have the opportunity for that big payoff. And, and thankfully I have a, a partner now in Jesse, who can be very risk averse and conservative um, when it comes to making decisions. And so we're, we're a good balance on that front. I kind of push the envelope and, and he's more of the brakes. But the way that I think about it is, you know, the way I think about a lot of stuff and how I get comfortable, what's worst case scenario, right? Worst case scenario, this thing goes to zero. I'm on my butt. I'm broke. Again, I've been broke before. Like when I was coming out of the lifestyle and events company, I think I was like $30,000 in credit card debt, right? I was, I was broke. And Airbnb basically helped me climb out of that really quick. I think I paid it off in like six months, right? Shout out uh, Airbnb. There yeah, yeah. So, so, so I was able to dig myself out of that hole once, and and you know I got a job. I got a, a, a different job in software sales, and I worked for Sensei. So my thought is always like worst case scenario, like I'll go get a job, right? I believe that I can go get a job. I believe I'm employable, and so you know if you believe that. If you believe you're employable and, and can go get a job, then worst case scenario is you try something, doesn't work out, and then you just go get another job again. So mm-hmm. I like it. So you get you have that belief, you jump full in and you create Blink Hospitality, founder yep. and CEO. Yep. And you know, you knock this out, you grow it from 10 managed properties to 200 in 12 different markets and really crush it. What was the key to doing that? Was it just that you were just all in on yourself or you built a great team or you knew the people who had money? What was your your way you won that way? Yeah, so I definitely put a lot on my shoulders and and was more in the kind of hustler mentality early on. Like, how do I do this super cost efficiently? You know, thinking way more about cost and lean operation than I was yeah. thinking about like, 
you know, growth and, and scaling this thing massively to like thousands of doors, let's say, and like trying to exit it. It was more of a cash flow play and I wanted to keep, you know, operations very lean. So outsourced everything I could to the Philippines. But, but at one point I became the bottleneck, right? Like I was doing all the pricing. I was doing all of the like guest issues that escalated beyond. Yeah, my, what do we do? We don't know how to answer this. Yeah, my $5 an hour people in the Philippines that are like, you know, afraid to give a hundred dollar refund. Cause it's yeah. like, you know, a week's worth of their salary. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. just, it's hard to get them to, to, to get there. So I was dealing with all that and I was, I think a year or two into dating my current wife and my, my wife and we were planning for the the we were planning for the wedding and you know i was like my my soon-to-be wife is going to kill me if i'm on my phone and like dealing with guest bs yes at my wedding yeah the so, thermostat's in the other room all right i'm ready, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 my guest comms team could deal, deal with stuff like that but like we had enough units at that point you know a couple hundred units like there was a much bigger issue probably going on than the thermostat yeah. at one of the properties every day, right? So I knew that I couldn't, I wasn't going to be able to deal with that on my wedding day, didn't want to deal with it on my honeymoon. So that's what actually pushed me to hire my first GM. And, and when I talk about GM, more like almost like a chief of staff, like corporate GM, not like mm -hmm. hotel GM, right. right? Because we had all these distributed properties. So she kind of over oversaw all that and like, you know, manage the guest comms team, you know, she would do pricing with, with my kind of support and strategy. And that's what really freed me up to be able to focus on growth and ultimately to, to build Onera while still having, you know, blink, blink running. I will say that, you know, we, we really got punched in the face by COVID about six months after my wedding in 2019, when like we had gotten Victoria, my GM, like really up to speed and most of our portfolio was urban rentals Oof. and we just got, we got hammered. So I was at my first team offsite with our Filipino team, which was now 20 people deep. Mm -hmm. We were in the Philippines. We had this amazing trip planned. Me and my partner, John, were over there, you know, showing them a good time. Mm -hmm. uh, private chef catered dinners, this amazing villa on the beach in Boracay. And, you know, this was like the first week of, of March, 2020. And it, oh, no. it, it, if you if you remember at like the end of February, most like popping up, yeah, we're popping up a little bit. Yeah, big it was going to be. The Philippines had like three confirmed cases, but come to find out, they were just like not really divulging how many they had, right? Mm -hmm. And we got there. My wife didn't want me to go. I was like, yeah, it's fine, like whatever. Mm -hmm. And and we go, and then the day after we get there, Manila Airport gets shut down. We're in Boracay with the team, still trying to you know have a good time. And then that's when, you know, I think Trump said, you know, Europeans can't, you know, cross into the U.S. and like travel screeched to a halt. Yes. Right? And, and almost all of our bookings got canceled overnight when we're like with everybody and trying to have this morale building thing. And I'm trying to put on face like I'm like the leader of everybody. And um, I'm just like absolutely terrified, right, of, of our business and what's going on and just having no idea what the future holds. And, you know, we, we did the best we could. We, uh, we ended up, you know, we, we, we almost broke even that year, which was incredible, you know, that we, that we were able to do that. We negotiated with landlords. I mean, they were dealing with a bunch of people that just weren't even paying. So okay. we, were you leasing most of these? Is that what you were doing? A lot of them released. We had a few owned, but most of them released. And so people were not paying them. And so when we came in and said, hey, we'll pay you 50%, 30%, whatever for, for the next six months, 12 months, just until we can kind of get out of this, they were, 
you know, ready to accept yeah, that. Like, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so we did that and that allowed us to kind of get by and we shifted to more midterm and longer term stays, right? Two weeks, a month, which is, you know, really what COVID turned into with the vacation rental world, right? That's people were not, we're no longer going somewhere for like a few days. They were like, all right, I'm just, I'm going to go here for a month, right? Or, or yeah. three weeks. And, and that's, we, we, we try to take advantage of that. Because our business took off here in South Florida with because of that. They weren't going to the hotels. They wanted their own space. And so it really yeah. took off for us down here too. So you mentioned this and I was going to, this is one of my questions. You have Onera Capital and Onera that starts in July, 2020. So in the heart of pandemic world, but you also had Blink going on. Was that a conscious effort? Like, look, we're very urban right now. I want to get out of this and focus more on going out into rural areas or more outdoor space? Was that a conscious decision or was it like, oh, we ran out of money and I got to make a pivot? What was it like? Oh, totally. I mean, COVID really influenced a lot of that decision. I I think it was more motivation than anything. I was interested in outdoor hospitality and unique stays even before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. So my partner now, who I mentioned, Jesse, had a compound in Joshua Tree with like a converted bus and a retired Cessna, which is, you know, like a, a small airplane that was more of an art sculpture than anything else. And he had an, you know, Airstream RV converted garage, a whole, a whole bunch of unique stays there. And on this awesome property in Joshua tree. And he was just doing these crazy numbers. And I was like, couldn't believe it. I went out there. I was in Palm Springs for my bachelor party. We did a, a night in at his Joshua tree compound. And, um, I, I really kind of got it when I stayed there and I saw the numbers was kind of blown away. So I wanted to do something in this alternative hospitality, unique stays, like, you know, glamping, if you want to call it that type, type, type area, but we were making good money with the urban STRs on the management side. And so, you know, it was kind of like, ah, let's kind of keep sticking, what, doing what we're doing. But once COVID hit and that business, you know, got all but wiped out, it, it pushed me to, uh, to really do something more unique and, and in that space, which led to led to Onera. And when we raised that real estate fund, it was supposed to be like when we raised it, it was supposed to be more of like a, a somewhat some lease arbitrage and then some also of this more unique hospitality development stuff, which like we had never I had never done development. Right. I, right. I, I was a manager. I had never done construction. And so that was a piece of the strategy, partially because. We didn't know if if our if investors would invest money when I hadn't really done development construction. But first project went so well, and the lease arbitrage opportunities between regulation and COVID and all the rest were really, you know, uh, we're, we're just we're just decreasing the amount of opportunity in in lease arbitrage was getting minimized. So we ended up, you know, deploying almost the entire fund to more of these unique stays. So we, we built Onera Fredericksburg. We bought a hotel in Palm Springs, which was La Dolce Vita, which we converted into what's now Spirit of Sofia. And, and instead of like selling individual rooms, we focus more on these massive buyouts. Great. So we have an 11 bedroom side and a 12 bedroom side. And, and we host, you know, birthday parties and bachelor, bachelorette parties, intimate weddings, all that kind of stuff. Corporate retreats does really well. Super like Instagrammable and colorful and vibey. Mm hmm. And Onera Wimberly was the the third kind of major asset in that fund. And, and that made up, you know, pretty much the entire of that first small fund that we raised. So cool. So as you're starting this, was it like, all right, I stayed in Joshua Tree with Jesse. Really cool. I want to start creating something like this for myself. And I'm going to do it out here in Austin, Texas. Now I got to raise some money. Or was it like, hey, 
there's something here. I'm going to raise a bunch of money. I'm going to figure out where we're going to put this. Or was it just at the same time? Like which one kind of started coming first? So I was interested in the space well before I actually was starting to look for land and kind of ideating Onera. Mm-hmm. And it was it was really COVID that pushed me in that direction. And that's when we really thought about raising a real estate fund. We thought there might be some deals in real estate also with COVID. So, hey, let's raise some money. Maybe we can you know get some deals and go into this foray of, of alternative hospitality, you know, landscape hotel, glamping resort type space. So, yeah, I would say like the idea came first. And then when COVID hit, really pushed me to take action on it. And that led to raising the real estate fund and, and ultimately building Onera. Cool. And for listeners out there, like, yeah, Ben, it's so easy for you to say to raise money. I've never done that. Like, did you ever do that before? Or was it something you had to learn and you're just trying to figure out how to raise money? I, I never did that before. And, and to be honest with you, we didn't end up raising that much money, right? You know, some people might look at it and say, you know, it was a failure. We, we wanted to raise 10 and we raised like three and a half, but that mm-hmm. was enough. And, and we've, you know, I found creative ways to still, you know, deploy that. And the one thing I'll say, the less money you raise in a real estate fund, the easier it is to deploy it into very high performing, high IRR return assets. If you got a whole boatload of money, it's, it gets harder to deploy that money and keep those returns high. So there was a benefit in actually raising less. And we used, you know, we found a way to use quite a bit of debt that was cheap, at least early in the fund. And then it got got really expensive. Right. So, you know, on Onera Fredericksburg, we had, we we worked with a local community bank to get senior debt. Of course, you know, we, we under budgeted given COVID Mm -hmm. and supplies went, you know, materials went crazy. Labor went crazy. We, We were shipping some stuff from China that went off the rails. So we went way over budget and ultimately had to raise some bridge debt. That was a mix of me, my partner, John, actually our operating company, Blink, loaned some money to to basically the fund and, and the Onera project. And then, you know, just some other kind of friends and family. And we were able to bridge that gap to finish the project, thank God. But yeah, it was a mix of mez debt, you know, bridge debt, senior debt on that one. And then similar structure, actually, we, we have the same structure of mez or junior debt and senior debt for both Spirit of Sophia in Palm Springs and Onera Wimberley. So we were able to turn three and a half million in LP investment into like $35 million in real estate. It's crazy. It's amazing. Well done on that. And so for people that may, if you're driving, pause, stop the car, go look at what Onera is because I want Ben to explain it, but I think you have to visualize it and see it to truly understand. So can you give us like the 30 second download on what you created? Yeah. So... Onera, I call Onera a landscape hotel. And, and you could also think of it as a treehouse resort or a luxury glamping resort. A lot of different ways people talk about it. Our goal with Onera was to create this one-of-a-kind experience, what we now call one-of-one, being you know sort of best in market of this super unique experience and really just super unique units, architecture, design, and, and to go more luxury, higher end, a lot of folks in this kind of glamping space, like under canvas, auto camp, they were more mid-tier, even lower tier. I mean, it was mm-hmm. like a step above roughing it, but still yes. an element of roughing it. Like you might not even have AC in the yeah. Arizona desert, right? Like you're in a, a 140 square foot airstream or something, right? Like it's still roughing it to some extent. So we wanted, we thought there was this massive untapped market of people that wanted to spend more 
for all the the comforts of home and then some right some amazing private amenities communal amenities and in these like super inspiring unique bespoke custom in a lot of cases structures so you know two of and and onera fredericksburg almost every unit type is unique you know we had nine units originally now we have 11 uh, there's three that we added actually in the last year that are pretty similar but all the other eight are very unique and different. And we have a mix of soft-sided, more tented style units. We have like the, the tree houses and those are more hard-sided units, some container homes, you know, geodesic dome, like I said, safari tent. We have a double peak safari tent with all steel and glass sort of enveloping it essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, w- when you're looking out, it's like kind of all glass in front of you and, and your roof is, is this double peak tent. And, you know, our two Two of our highest performing units, Monarch and Spyglass, are these custom-built hard-sided tree houses. Monarch, you know, looks like a modern take on a butterfly, you know, mm-hmm. where the name comes from. And it's got this, you know, double-peaked roof and super interesting architecture. It's got this massive staircase that wraps around a big cedar elm tree and really gives it that tree house vibe. And the whole thing is, you know, when you're up there, you're elevated, whatever, 15 feet plus in the air. And Spyglass, similarly, you're about 15 feet up. You enter from one side, there's some drop off on the other. And we actually have this beautiful cedar hot tub that's up there on the spyglass. It's spyglass is basically like a, a tube type structure and, and shape uh, that, that is a treehouse. So it's elevated. We have this amazing cedar hot tub on the end that's kind of overlooking nature and, and still resting, you know, 15 feet up. So yeah, we have these super unique one of a kind units and Onera means dream in Greek. And the idea of Onera is like bringing you into this dream world, almost a little bit of a fantasy world, right? Mm -hmm. You get to step in your own little private bubble and we are limited service. So despite getting $1,000 plus on the weekends and our ADR is being $500, $600 or more, we are limited service. You you use a keypad to check yourself in. We have one on-site guy for emergencies and, and maintenance and upkeep. And the rest of our team is is offsite. You know, a lot of them offshore in the Philippines, responding to inquiries as they come in. But yeah, it's very light on the staff side, and and that's not only good from a cost efficiency standpoint, but we think it's good from a giving people their private bubble space. We get a lot of romantic getaways. We get a lot of couples retreat type stays, and mm-hmm. you know they want their own little private bubble. I love it. And so again, listeners, make sure to go online, check these out. Instagram, their social media is amazing. And I'm pretty sure you have a strategy behind that, right? Or did you make some of these places just so they would look awesome on Instagram? Or does it just happen to be that they take good photos? So now I am much more oriented towards what's going to do really well on Instagram, what's going to video amazingly well, what's going to shoot amazingly well. There was a little more of like, I want to build something amazing. I wasn't necessarily thinking about Instagram. I was thinking about probably more so like unique Airbnbs that were also crushing it. Like let's say uh, invisible house and Joshua tree places like that, where you have these unique Airbnbs that are just doing thousands of dollars a night. Um, So that was more where the inspiration came from. But yeah, once we, once we opened, we started having influencers hit hit us up on Instagram. So like I I, um, actually, no, it wasn't on Instagram. It was on Airbnb. I didn't even have an Instagram account up yet. And, and we had Instagram influencers hitting us up on Airbnb, like, hey, can I promote your place? Can I do a giveaway? Can I, you know, can I come? 
And for a while I was like, ah, whatever, you know, I'll get to it when I get to it. It was not top priority. Finally relented. This, this one girl that did amazing for us was very persistent. And I was like, okay, come on out. So she came out, we, we threw together this direct booking website, which was certainly glitchy and not ideal threw together an Instagram, started posting photos, like wasn't even doing reels. Right. And she, the first post that she did and she didn't even stay, she just came and got content. She had somewhere to go, took content, did a giveaway, uh, you know, giveaway, I don't know, expected value probably cost us like a few hundred bucks for for a travel advisor. Right. She got 10% or something, a percentage of the booking. No, no. So, so nothing. She, Just no, like a- so the, the influencers, what she wanted was be the, the first one to showcase Onera because it was so cool and different. And she was a travel influencer and kind of hospitality influencer. Yeah. So she, she needs to be showing all the cool new stuff because that's her authority with her audience. Right. Got so there's, there's a real win-win. So early on, we just had people like, Oh, you know, let me say, let me stay because yeah. they wanted to be the first ones to showcase it. So she did this post, we got like 10 to $15,000 in direct bookings off of essentially no cost. And so had her come out again, you know, a month later, she did it again with a different account she had, same results. So that really turned me on to the direct bookings thing. And that's when we started in Instagram and social media and started taking it more seriously. I was still kind of doing it on the side myself. Yep. I was not somebody that spent a lot of time in Instagram before Onera. So it's kind of learning on the fly. Amanda, who I was talking about, that that came out and and did our first giveaways and influencer posts. She helped me a bit early on, and you know I was doing I don't know twenty to thirty minutes a week. Like it was not a lot of my time posting yeah. photos. Still wasn't doing reels. Was just responding to inbound influencers that wanted to come stay for the most part, and then we were getting up to we were doing about thirty to thirty five percent of our bookings direct. And we were, we were doing price parity. So it wasn't like we were given a big discount. We were just trying right. to achieve price parity with Airbnb. So we basically scooped like 12% margin. Airbnb is 15% total. Mm-hmm. And either way, you're going to pay like 3% processing. So you're yep. scooping like 11, 12%. So that was very compelling to me. And I thought we could even increase our direct bookings. So tried to hire an agency. Oh, one thing I don't want to forget. In addition yes. to OTA fee savings, there's so many more benefits to getting direct bookings. So one of them is that you're in our case, we feel like we're, we're targeting and reaching an aspirational guest, right? So there's a guest that they're not price shopping on Airbnb. They see this amazing unit or what looks like an amazing experience on Instagram. And they feel like they have to have it. And there's essentially no competition, right? They're going from Instagram to your website and whether it's, you know, 650 or 950, they're probably going to book either way, right? Yeah, so, they've, they've already dropped about being there. Exactly. And, and it's like, I'm going to do this once. And, and that's one thing we get into, like we don't get a ton of repeat business. And, that's my and next question. Like, yeah. yeah. And it's one reason that because it's a splurge for a lot of people. I actually don't know. I don't think we get as many people as you would think, despite our price point of people that like have, you know, FU money where it's just like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to pay because I want to stay in the nicest place there. I think we get a lot of people that like, this is a good chunk of their travel budget, like for the quarter or the year. Right. But like, they really want to stay at Onera, They want to experience it, but it's not something they're going to come back. And also Fredericksburg, I don't know if it's a market you're going to go back to like multiple times a year. So right. we only open two years, our repeat customer rates low, but I'm, I'm actually, you know, working on different strategies where we can leverage other unique stays and their audience. That's a very similar audience to ours in order to cross market 
And, and I feel like we all benefit because if, if you stayed at, let's say Isaac French's place at Live Oak Lake in Waco, which is another mm-hmm. kind of modern, you know, unique stay landscape hotel in central Texas. If you stay there, there's a decent chance you want to stay at Onera and you just might not know about it yet. Right. And there's not a whole, there's not a ton of competition. Like you might not want to be running back to go to Live Oak Lake because you've done it, but you want, you like staying at unique different places. So we, we're looking at more of these cross marketing opportunities, both through our management and marketing company, Sayawasi, mm-hmm. which is, the management and marketing company that's really the engine under Onera, Spirit of Sophia, and some other assets that like third parties that we manage for. So we can continue to build this, this email list and this you know audience where we can cross market. And I'm actually an advisor for, you know, I know of the, the first soft brand in the outdoor hospitality space, which is Nook. And I think that they're also going to provide opportunities not only for group sales and uh you know event bookings but also for these cross marketing opportunities once they have a bunch of this similar unique stay type type product under their belts last thing i want to say on on social we, we started getting more serious about it in 2023 mm-hmm. tried to hire an agency didn't go super well so ended up deciding i have to build this capability myself internally and, and i just want to clear, a social media agency a pr agency what were what kind of agency were you looking for Social media. You worked with. Social and media. they actually yep. did both social media and PR, but we were only using them for social media. Got it. And you know, they were like, Oh, we'll come out and do a shoot for you once a quarter. And it, it wasn't a professional shooter. And she was just, you know, wasn't getting the best stuff. Yeah. And it was once a quarter, it was just nowhere near enough content for what yeah. we needed. Yes. You need like daily. Yeah. So ended up deciding, okay, I got to bring this in house. And, and now our social media marketing team is like half of Sayawasi is those people, right? And that's that's been about six months since we started that. And we've done really well. We've gone from 20,000 followers to we're approaching 50,000. So I, I got from you know zero to 20 in like a year and a half. And then in the past six months, we've more, you know, more than doubled that. So Amazing. really, t- really taking it seriously. We have shooters, a full-time editor, you know, a social media manager who also helps recruit the influencers, like a couple of VAs that help us with some more of the, the nuts and bolts of it. And uh, Jesse, who I mentioned, you know, is kind of running yep. leading that department. And one of our main shooters is also kind of helping manage that team. So, I mean, all told, it's like, you know, five or six full-time people and like a number of part-timers. But I love that. And I'm a big believer in it because they're all paying for themselves, right? And you're becoming the creator. You don't need to bring in creators or to, that you have to pay. Like you're creating your own stuff and people yeah. are really digging it. Yeah. And I see it. I follow what you guys are doing. I love it, what you're building. But I want to ask you one thing. This is more for me. Like you have, uh, you know, the Sophia, you've got Onera. How are you seeing that compare? I'm sure the rates are very different. Like I know you have a different strategy. We're not doing individual rooms at the Sophia, but do you see it? way more in one versus the other? Like, do you see a rate of return bigger on the outdoor hospitality versus the traditional? Yeah. So the, the thing about Spirit of Sophia and a hotel like that, you can buy and renovate it and sort of bump the revenue a lot faster. I mean, Onera mm-hmm. from finding the land, I mean, I did it as fast as I'll ever do it the first time, just trying yeah. to hack it together. Like knowing what I know now, I would not do it without the proper planning, mm-hmm. you know, which is what I did. So we, that one went up in under a year, but typically it's minimum 18 months from finding the land and user usually closer to two years. So there's, there's more of a lag there, but once you're up and running, I mean, the returns are through the roof, right? Like one, once you get that. So if you have more patient capital, 
then you can do an Onera strategy and, and you get really amazing returns. Spirit of Sophia is faster. And yes, it's, it's a very different product. We're doing the social media marketing for both. Onera has been a bit easier on that front. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Couple stays, I think are easier. And when it comes to like your website and all that, you're only convincing basically one person. Yeah. Whereas the Spirit of Sophia, you might be convincing like a dozen people, right? right. That, that this is legit and whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like with Onera, it's like a couple, right? So it's easier for them to book that way and just less people to coordinate and decide on staying somewhere. Though with that said, like Spirit of Sophia, we're doing like 20% direct, which I think is pretty good for more of a, you know, a big vacation rental, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Onera, we're doing like 70% direct, some months 80, which is just wild. Bananas, yeah. Yeah, compared to what I was originally (laughs) underwriting and thinking. But I still think there's, there's a lot of value to be had with Spirit of Sophia on that front because there's like, there's things that it's hard to quantify, which is challenging. Like if, if we're trying to recruit a $50,000, $70,000 Coachella booking, like we need to have an Instagram presence. We need to have an online presence so that they feel comfortable that like we get it. Yeah, and that you're in business in a real place. Yeah, business real place with a reputation that mm-hmm. understands social media, that you know understands the vibe that, that they're probably going for. And so there's there's those kind of aspects that that benefit, but there's a bunch of other marketing strategies we plan to roll out for Spirit of Sophia in the next like six months or so. But uh, yeah, I mean that one we underwrote it at like post renovation around 900 or 950k. We're gonna break through a million this year, and we're really trying to push. You know, trying to get closer to 1.2 million in revenue there. Yeah, man, I love what you're doing, and I know we're running low on time, so I've got one last question for you, Ben. Yep. You've done all different things. You have been all over the globe and seen some of the coolest things in hospitality. And now you're building something like that. But if young Ben was starting on your team today, what advice would you have for him? Yeah. So there's so many things, right? Um, and I'll, I'll try to keep it to, to a few. So starting on my team versus like starting their yeah, own. Yeah, it's like they're on your, you got young Ben, this guy's straight out of Wash U joining you. And it's like, man, I'm going to kill it in this industry. What advice are you giving them? So I, I think a big one is rolling up your sleeves and, and trying a bunch of different things. If you, if you try a bunch of things like I have, right? I mean, we talked about my career. There's been a lot of left turns and, and yep. whatnot, right? And departures, but all that, that full experience has influenced Onera. And it's like, because I've done all those very different things that all influenced what I was able to build with Onera, I, I feel like it gives competitive advantage. So like roll up your sleeves, try a bunch of different things, try to you know learn from people that you respect and are inspired by. I, I think another one that really has helped me level up is just understanding that for, for the longest time, I feel like I was a hustler, right? And now I'm getting more into this more sophisticated operator and, you know, able to execute at scale. And that all comes down to people, right? And, and, and building your network of people that could be potential hires, potential partners, like you never know, like I used to work for Jesse and then I brought him in as a partner in this business. So yeah, you you know, like just building those relationships, maintaining them, always thinking about people that you might want to work with in the future. And, and as you start to elevate and, and grow in the business, like learning how to develop people and, and learning how to uh, manage people, right? Like I, I really try to, to not be a, a micromanager. You know, I think I'm pretty good at that and, and kind of let people make their own mistakes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, you got to kind of eat it 
on, on a mistake here or there in order for somebody to learn. But then if they're good, they will learn and you get so much value out of that in the future. And, and they'll never forget once they, they brick it, you know, once or twice, right? Probably the most important thing for successful people in hospitality or anywhere else, I think, is a sense of urgency, right? And and Jesse like makes fun of me a lot because he calls me psychotic sometimes when it comes to my sense of urgency, right? And it's it, it's within me. I can't help it. I try to temper it, and I try to remember like not everybody's like me. So I've learned to push people along with hopefully out, hopefully without pissing them off. I think there's a skill to that. But yeah, just having urgency, like. Why, why is it going to take six months? Why, why can't it take two? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and really trying to push the envelope there because, you know, people that have a sense of urgency get stuff done. They execute stuff, you know, it might not be perfect the first time, but they iterate on it. They do it better the next time. So yeah, urgency execution. I love it. And I think that's a, a good place to end our conversation for listeners. Go rewind that last minute. Cause there's a lot of gems in there. Uh, ben, I appreciate you sharing your story with us and all the advice. I know we're going to learn a lot from you. I have today. Uh, but listeners, make sure to check out stayonera.com and go follow Ben Wolf on LinkedIn. He shares a lot of great information on there. I love seeing what you're sharing every day. That's a lot of value for people that are following you. So Ben, thanks again. Yeah, of course. And um, for those of you that are that are more into Twitter, I'm also on there at Unique Stays Guys. I love it, man. Well, thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.